Everyday, ordinary people living extraordinary lives. For the next few minutes, join me as I introduce you to some of them. That's a form of apologizing because you're acknowledging, you know, you're wrong. And the only way that you could acknowledge you're wrong is if you could apologize for your wrong. I'm B. Moore, and welcome to 52 Conversations. For those of you who don't believe in second chances, this episode is definitely for you. My next guest committed what in the eyes of some is the most heinous of crimes, but found redemption through a simple yet profound act. My name is Rashawn Sullivan, and I'm the founder of I Apologize program. Thank you, Rashawn, for being on 52 Conversations with me. I really appreciate your presence here. I want to start this interview by having you take me back to a specific event that took place on November 25th of 1997. And I want you to tell me what happened. Basically on that day I ended the life of a young man. I was part of a um, gang or a group of guys that could be classified as a gang and we called ourselves the Brain Brigade. And we had another problem with some other gentlemen who could be classified as a gang, and they were called Ben's Block. And um, a friend of mine's had a problem with a, a friend or a guy from Ben's Block because he stole $40 from his cousin. And the guy didn't want to give up the $40, so one thing led to another, and him and my friend started fighting. And then that drew other people into the situation and then it became a situation where now, as a group of guys, we're all beefing with these guys. So at that point, you could uh, be jumped or you could be in an altercation just off of association. And that's what kind of happened with the uh, young man whose life that I ended. On that day, a friend of mine came to me and told me that one of the guys from Ben's Block wanted to fight me. And the reason why he had wanted to fight me was because his younger brother lied on me. Because about four days prior to November 25th, I was driving around Syracuse early in the morning and, you know, I was out selling crack all night. And the guy seen my car and he took off and ran. And in the process, he ended up spraining his ankle really bad. But he told his brother that I chased him with the car which I never did. I don't even know how this young man even looked, even to this day. It was all a lie. But nevertheless, his older brother wanted to fight me or whatever. So I went over there with a group of friends. Me and the guy, um, we were fighting. Um, one of his friends came out of the house with a bat with nails in it. But at this time, somebody had called the police, so they broke it up. But the fact that the guy had brought a weapon into the equation that's what made me think about bringing a weapon into the equation. So we went back to our neighborhood, and about an hour later, me and my friends, we got in a car and we went over to their neighborhood. I jumped out of the car and I opened fire. And I didn't hit anyone at that particular time, but I did get out of the car and was shooting at them. Got back in the car, went to my friend's house. We was there playing pool drinking, smoking. A couple hours went by, we decided to go back to our neighborhood. 
we could have went anywhere or any way, so to say, but we just happened to go down Salina. It wasn't a conscious thought or anything like that, or we wasn't even going back down Salina where these guys be hanging at to even actually start trouble with them. We were just really going back to the uh, neighborhood. There was no thoughts of saying, hey, let's go get them before we go back to the neighborhood. None of that. We just rode. And one of my friends seen the young man who life I ended along with another guy, and they were walking through their neighborhood, and my friend pointed them out. And I was more so saying, like, you know what, they don't got nothing to do with it or whatever the case may be. I didn't really feel like they were part of it or that we really had an issue with them. But my friend, he, you know, became a little hostile and then said that, you know, basically give him the gun. And when he said that, I falsely interpreted that he was, you know, like challenging my manhood, thinking that I didn't want to, you know, fire the weapon, which was my own ignorance because I just had fired a weapon earlier. So it's not like they thought that I was scared to fire it. And it's not the first time that I fired a weapon. So that was never really the actual conclusion. I just basically misinterpreted because of my own ego insecurities. So I told my friend to circle the um, block, and as he circled the block, you know, basically we rolled in silence. We were on Salina and Carvin, then we turned on uh, Salina and McKinley, then we turned on State and Borden, and then we were back on Salina Street. Where the actual shooting took place was on um, Wood Street, Wood Ave and Salina Street. I remember it vividly. That part but also the ride around the corner it was very slow motion wasn't nobody talking it just seemed like everybody was in their own world i was looking out of the window in my own uh world so to say my friend finally got around to the uh corner we approached the young men i basically rolled the window down i stuck a uh gun out of the window and I fired it and unfortunately a young man was hit in his abdomen and basically he died on the spot and that's basically um, what happened and when you really look at it a man died over his association from an incident that stemmed over forty dollars. How did that feel in that moment. How did that feel to you when that happened? Did you realize that that young man actually was going to die? And was it your thought to take him out? No, it wasn't my thought to take him out. I didn't even think that he would die. I was just firing the weapon, you know, as we do. I never really said, you know what, well, I'm going to kill you when this or even when it happened, I didn't think that he would die from it because at that time in 97, violence with guns in Syracuse wasn't really at a high level like that. So homicides, they happened, but it wasn't a common thing. So I never really thought that he basically would die. But I did have a weird feeling come over me after it did happen, like I felt kind of weird like something intuitively knew something was wrong. I didn't know at that present moment, but it was a, a weird, numb type feeling that had me in slow motion of just thinking and moving and seeing 
for a couple hours. So after the incident had happened, apparently this young man, he died as a result of the, the shooting. What happened afterwards in terms of with law enforcement and you being uh, eventually convicted? Oh, well, um, people had knew that I had shot at them earlier, so there was a lot of speculation that I was the one who basically fired the weapon. There was no definitive knowing at that present moment, but it was speculation. But that was enough for, like, police to do investigation. And plus they knew what type of car that we were in because I had jumped out of it earlier. So people in the community told who car it was, which was my friend's father. He was a fireman. So they went to him, and he told him that his son had the car. And um, one thing led to another where, you know, basically my friends, for whatever reason, cooperated with the police and basically was like I was the one who fired the weapon and stuff like that. And that's what led to um, an indictment on my part. But at this time, I didn't really know what had happened with my friend or friends or whatever, like far as cooperating. So what I did was I turned myself in to make it look like I didn't fire the weapon because they were harassing my grandmother and she was basically saying like, you know, if you didn't have anything to do with it, then like, why are you on the run? So I just basically tried to make it look like I didn't do it. But they eventually read me my rights and indicted me based off of the fact that they had eyewitnesses stating that I fired the weapon. So what I ended up doing was out of fear of getting a lot of time, I accepted a plea deal of 17 years to life. And I was arraigned in Onondaga County Court. I see. And you served how many of those years? 17. The full 17? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now where did you serve those 17 years? Um, I did about five of it in Kasaki Correctional Facility. I did another year in Attica. I did a year in something in um, Auburn. I did another year in what they would call solitary confinement. That is like basically being in a, um, a cell for 23 hours out of the day. Um, I did about two years in a place called Comstock Correctional Facility. I did another two years in um, Five Point Correctional Facility. And then I did like another five and a half years in Cayuga Correctional Facility. And that's when I had made my uh, first parole board. I see. And I was released. So during that time, and it sounds like you traveled to a lot of different places. So you saw a lot of the correctional system from a lot of different perspectives in terms mm -hmm. of locations and locales. But at what point were you remorseful about what had happened? Mm. About 2010. Okay. That's when I started developing a um, certain level of consciousness that allowed me to process remorse. But I had started the journey of it in 2007. And then 2010 is when it kind of finally fell into my consciousness 
and then I was able to, you know, act on it. Okay. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? How did that consciousness get developed? Was that just self-consciousness or was there somebody there to mentor you and, and help shape that thought process or that ideology? Um, I met an old man named Richard Eiffel Sunday and he was in a wheelchair. He probably was about in his late 50s. But he had became my mentor in 2007. And he just more so taught me about the knowledge itself and, you know, the importance of keeping my sanity while I was in prison and the importance of dreaming again. Because oftentimes a lot of men in prison who do a substantial amount of time, they stop dreaming. So he had uh, taught me about things like that, about history, about religion, about uh, spirituality and stuff like that. And it wasn't until I left him in 2009, no, actually in 2008, he had uh, left the facility. But after that, I had developed my own personal way of studying, just studying life, studying myself, studying what I wanted out of life. And that is how I was able to come to a level of remorse because I did seek what they would call a transformation. I did want to be a better person, but in order to achieve that, I had to look at the man in the mirror, and that um, required me being able to acknowledge my wrong for what I did, because the truth is I was wrong. So with accepting that, that's where the remorse had came in, because I finally realized that, you know what, I did something that not only hurt people, but it hurt me. And it also stopped what people will call a conscious mind or a creative intelligence from using a vehicle in this world. I feel that everybody is a vehicle to express a certain level of intelligence to make the world a better place. And I denied that intelligence access. So that kind of like didn't sit with me well and that's when I became remorseful for you know my uh, conduct. I see, I see. So let's fast forward now. You, you developed this consciousness during your time in prison. You were released at what point? March 9th, 2015. Okay. And did you immediately think that you would start the I Apologize program? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you had it in mind that you were going to start that program. But you had to start with your own situation. And you had to seek forgiveness of the family of the young man whose life was taken. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that process. Tell us about what you did and how you reached out to that family. Well, before that, I had reached out. Well, I didn't reach out. I had wrote a letter of apology while I was in prison to him. And I was going to send it out to him through the news agency, but my consciousness told me that that wouldn't be the right thing to do. So that's when the, the apologizing began, when I started to put it on paper, so to say, but when I was released, I had already had the um, apology on brain because I wrote it and I've shared it with people because I was what they would call a facilitator in prison, meaning I had taught inmates on how to be better men 
anger replacement training, nonviolent therapy, and stuff like that. So I had already been expressing my um, remorse and my apology and all that. So when I got out here, I just connected with the right people to make it happen, which was people who were already active in the community, like Tim Noble, Jennings Bay. I had connected with him, but I had connected with him while I was in prison. Um, Dave Von Hunter, and these people kind of like navigated the situation for me because it was a touchy situation, so we didn't know how people would really react. So I never really like approached them. They were the ones who were like speaking on my behalf. And plus the family was kind of like following me on social media or inquiring about me. And eventually, you know, some of them got to the point where they felt like I was remorseful. And, you know, uh, my friend Davon presented to him the possibility of me, you know, apologizing to him where it happened at, on the day that it happened. And, you know, when it was 2015, November 23rd, is when I apologized, but the incident happened on the 25th, but just so happened Thanksgiving was on the 25th of 2015, so I didn't want to disturb no one's holiday, so I did it two days prior, but it was a real emotional experience because not every day or not in a lifetime you will find somebody coming face to face with, you know, victim's family and you have to really look in their eyes and see, you know, a whole bunch of emotions all in one. So, I mean, it was uncomfortable, but it was something that had to get done because that's what was scripted, and that was what was part of my healing, part of my ascension and transformation, is to be able to get over that hurdle, but also, you know, give other people an outlet or a moment to determine, you know, how they truly feel about the situation. Let me ask you, do you feel like there was healing that was provided in that moment for the family? Of the victim. Yeah. That's what they said, you know? Because, I mean, and not everybody's into the forgiving thing, but some people are. And when they are, there is a reward for that. And the reward for that is a healed heart. And basically, that's what transpired with that. Nice. If you just joined us, welcome to 52 Conversations. My guest on today is Rashawn Sullivan. He's the founder of the I Apologize program, and we're talking about the work that he's doing in the community. And, and so you were able to accomplish that for yourself. And with the I Apologize program, you're trying to accomplish that not only for yourself, but for others as well. And I want mm -hmm. you to tell us a little bit about the I Apologize program and how it works. Mm -hmm. Well, initially, it, you know, it uh, started off as um, me apologizing to the young man's family. Then I had wrote a book um, called I Apologize, ended up doing a book signing. And then I started doing, like, lectures inside of um, prisons, the county jail, detention centers, 
universities, Syracuse, Cornell, OCC, Lemoyne, just to name a few. And um, when that kind of happened, I um, started putting together little um, programs where people would be able to apologize and sign greeting cards and stuff like that. And now what we're doing is becoming a reentry program to give other prisoners an opportunity to apologize. But there's different ways to express an apology. So just by the mere fact of them doing the right thing for themselves and by their family, that's a form of apologizing because you're acknowledging, you know, you're wrong. And the only way that you could acknowledge you're wrong is if you could apologize for your wrong. So the next step in what we're doing now is we're going to be working with uh, young men who are in juvenile detention centers and prisoners who are um, coming home or who are form who were formerly incarcerated and give them an opportunity to uh, redeem themselves by being um, not only successful in their own lives but uh, positive member within the uh, community. Certainly. No, that's great. That's great. Now let me ask you this. If somebody wanted to get involved with the program or maybe they have somebody who is currently incarcerated, how would they be able to connect them with the program with yourself? Okay, well I mean you go to my website which is I apologize 315.com you could go there, or you could um, go to my Instagram page, which is uh, 315, I apologize. And you can go to um, social media, Facebook, and follow me on there. And that is under my real name, um, Rashawn Sullivan, but I still do like a lot of promoting of my work um, off of there. Okay. And you mentioned the book. Now, if people wanted to access the book, how can they access your book? Um, they could go to my website or they could go to Create Space. What would you say to, if you had the opportunity to, to speak to some of these young people who are out, you know, perpetrating uh, violent acts, things of that nature against each other or against whomever the victims may be, what would you say to those young people? I will let them know that, you know, you reap what you sow. Whatever harm you do to someone else, ultimately you do it to yourself. Even if you're not aware of it in that present moment that you're harming yourself. But I will let them know that no misdeeds go unpunished. Like, you can stop yourself from reaching your truest potential by harming someone else. You will never find your true self. You will never be happy. You will have moments of happiness, but you will never have a peace of mind because you will never discover yourself because you're, you're, you're caught in what they would call a low density of vibration, which deals with violence, anger, pain, and suffering. So I would just let them know, if you want to reach your truest self, then you have to remove yourself from the things that promotes destruction and death. Rashawn, I just want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. 
I really appreciate the lessons that you have learned and I know that it's said that a wise person learns from um, the mistakes of others and I'm hoping that the wisdom that you have found is transferred to others in this community. Yep, and thank you for having me, man. To learn more about the I Apologize program, you can go to Rayshawn's website, iapologize315.com. You can also reach Rayshawn under his namesake, Rayshawn Sullivan, on Facebook as well as Instagram. 52 Conversations is a production of More About You. Join us next time.